Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest today is Christopher R. Terry, Assistant Professor of Media Law and Ethics at the University of Minnesota Hubbard School of Journalism and Mass Communication. And we will discuss his new article, Localism as a Solution to Market Failure, Helping the FCC Comply with the Telecommunications Act. So welcome to the program, Terry. Thanks for having me. So I got to say, um, as a radio broadcaster, amateurish radio broadcaster myself, and someone interested in the history of, of radio, I thought your paper was really interesting and sort of a wonderful introduction, really kind of rich introduction uh, in a concise form to the history of regulation of broadcast media with sort of a heavy radio focus. Um, but I was wondering if you could start by talking sort of about the premise of the paper itself. So you, you, you talk about localism as a solution to market failure. And I, I think some listeners may not be you know that familiar with the concept of a market failure. So I was wondering if you talk about you know what is a market failure and what particular kind of market failure are you interested in in this paper? Sure. Market failure is the idea that there are some problems that can't be solved by a free market solution, and that once in a while, regulation is required to step in and correct either a policy failure or a gap in economics that is created through the application of policy. When it comes to media ownership and localism specifically, it's part of a larger scheme that the FCC began to implement in the 1990s after the 1996 Telecommunications Act. The policy is based around the idea that there are three objectives that need to be achieved. Competition, that takes the form of economic competition between different owners of media properties. Localism, that's the uh, focus of our broadcasting system and has been since its inception in the 1920s, where it is built around a system of local broadcasters and diversity, which the FCC has loosely defined a variety of ways, but is most interested in creating an environment where competition and localism serve to create programming in the form of content diversity or more specifically, viewpoint diversity. The market failure that the paper addresses is that the FCC has done a lot on the first goal in terms of competition. It's tried to, but hasn't quite achieved its goals on the third objective, viewpoint diversity. And its second objective, localism, which is probably the most underserved of the three, is actually the mechanism that the FCC should be trying to use to get itself out of a couple of legal jams that have been created as these market failures have been created by the FCC's uh, failure to implement this policy in a rational way. Okay. So, yeah, this is fantastic. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting about your paper was the way you kind of laid out the history of the way that the FCC and its predecessor, the FRC, have regulated broadcast media and sort of how the expectations and um, and the framework has changed over time. So I was, I was wondering, just as a way of kind of understanding where we are, you could talk a little bit about kind of where we've 
where we've come from, sort of what, what did it used to do as compared to what it's doing today? Okay. About a hundred years ago, when the Federal Radio Commission was first deciding how to assign stations to various frequencies, it faced uh, a couple of choices. One option was to have just a handful of stations and allow them to cover massive geographic areas. So they'd be essentially regional or nationally based stations. And the other option was to have a series of smaller locally based stations that could be interconnected through networks. And it was seen early on and all the way through and into up into and including the mid 1950s that the local based broadcast system assigning stations to various geographic areas based around where the population centers were to try and cover as much of the landmass with as many different signals as possible was the better of those two options. Now, there's a long and complicated history on how we came to that decision. But what the real aspect of that was is that our media system was based around a local interconnected system of stations. So although nationalized programming mechanisms existed, localism and locally based stations tied very closely to the communities where they were licensed was the system that our media system was built upon. And the predecessor of this, of course, was how the postal system evolved in the late 1700 and early 1800s, where it was just a, a system of regionally interconnected hubs and spokes for delivery of content from one place to another. It was a very simple technocratic choice. And stations were licensed to operate as trustees of the public good. And that system worked really well until about the mid-1970s. In the late 1970s, we started to look at media not necessarily as a mechanism for continued enforcement or information outlets, but we looked at them more as businesses. And in the early 1980s, the FCC sort of changes its approach to how it handles uh, the regulation of media outlets and starts to treat them more like businesses. And it starts using economics more readily than traditional utility style regulation that it had used up to that point. And then in the mid 1990s, the FCC is given a directive by Congress signed by Bill Clinton in the form of the 1996 Telecommunications Act, which upends the model that had worked very well for 70 plus years. And it said that none of these concerns about locally based system are as valid as they used to be because there's other new forms of media at the time, cable being the the dominant one. But, you know, the Internet was in its early days at that point. And what Congress tells the FCC to do is to change how media ownership policy is enforced. And we went from very narrow limits where you had a lot of different diverse owners spread across every little market to a consolidated approach where we were regulating them as large competitors and we allowed them to buy up large numbers of stations. This was true both for radio, but also for television. And what gets lost in that is instead of having a bunch of mom and pop operators for radio and television stations in individual markets that are affiliates of network operations, instead what you have is a uh, 
sort of an economy of scale model where multiple stations are bought by single owners and you lose some of the diversity. And importantly, you lose some of the localism that uh, in that exchange because the stations are now being operated not on a local basis, but on a national or regional basis as groups of stations. So that's how we got from point A to point B. And that's where the paper comes in is that it recognizes and identifies that the loss of localism is why the FCC has been has struggled to implement this policy in a rational way. Yeah, and it struck me from from the paper that you sort of describe these kind of two interrelated phenomena taking place kind of in relation to each other, as it were, like a move in terms of ownership from more fragmented to more consolidated, and then also kind of a policy shift from kind of looking to localism as a value to looking to to competition as the primary sort of driver of regulation. Is that a fair assessment of sort of the sort of big picture of, of radio regulation and broadcast regulation? Yeah. It, what fundamentally changed is the FCC changed its philosophy on how these things should be treated. For a long time, broadcasters were sort of a, a central piece of a larger information sphere. But at some point, it stopped being about the lawyers and the administrative law experts and the technical specialists. And the people who began to take over at the FCC were people who were economists, for example. Mark Fowler, who was Reagan's FCC chairman, he says that he he brought in a philosophy at the FCC that media companies are fundamentally businesses and we should regulate them as businesses. Well, one way that businesses make a lot of money is through making use of things like economy of scale. You take two stations that are independently owned. You allow one person to own both stations. There's an inherent cost savings in operating more than one station in the same place at the same time that allows those companies to make more business. And it's really, you know, it can be construed as sort of a, a shift from value, but really it's just a philosophical change in how we are to treat media in this country. We begin to treat them as businesses. And as such, we get away from sort of that core value that had been associated with the broadcasting system for its first uh, 70 years or so. Yeah. Well, so one of the things that that struck me as really interesting in your paper, and this is a small part of it, but something that, that I really liked was, you know, there's this obvious correlation between the ascendance of the sort of Chicago school in antitrust theory and whatnot, and the shift in sort of the sort of regulatory perspective at the FCC from sort of more content-based or more, you know, kind of value-based to more sort of competition-based regulation. Um, but then you also point out that there's a kind of critique of that very move, like on the merits, coming from some people you would normally associate with a Chicago school position that, you know, in this particular context, it might not actually achieve what they want. And it, it really seemed like that was borne out by some of the examples you gave. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Well, it boils down without getting too far afield, and I could talk about that for a week, but it boils down to a, a a pretty simple fact. Broadcasting cannot have a traditional economic model applied to it because it's a closed environment for entrance. 
So regardless of how many owners you're talking about, you don't end up with a situation where traditional economic theory can be applied. And there are lots of, there have been lots of criticisms of the FCC's economic-based approach because it doesn't work. And that's where you start to see the, these, this sort of, uh, this sort of back and forth among groups that would normally be sort of pro-economic. They recognize that there's some gaps in how this model can be applied to the FCC. And when I say it doesn't work, what I mean is it doesn't achieve the stated goals of the policy. When the FCC designs and implements and goes through the rulemaking process to create media ownership policy, enforce media ownership policy, implement and or review and change media ownership policy, it has to state what the goals of those policies are. Those goals are competition, localism, and diversity. It's arguable that viewpoint diversity has been dramatically reduced by the Mm -hmm. FCC's actions since the mid-90s. The FCC hasn't done anything meaningful in terms of localism regulation since uh, the mid-2000s. And even then, it it started a process, didn't like what it was finding, and basically abandoned that process uh, mid-effort. But in large ways, you get down to the economic basis of it. And the idea that competition can fix the other two problems might be true in some context. But for broadcasting, what you've essentially done is you've created an environment where ever bigger mergers have led to even larger mergers. And you continually work against your two two of your three primary objectives in an effort to use the, the first, the competition model to achieve those. And that's why there's a, there's sort of a little discord on economic theory as it applies to this, because there's no way for new competition to come in to the closed environment that broadcasting represents. Yeah. Well, and one thing that hit me as like really counterintuitive, but as soon as I read it in your paper, it was struck me as like obviously plausible and seemed to be supported by the evidence you presented was, you know, normally we think, okay, more competition equals more diversity, right? And the more people we have competing in the market, the more we're going to achieve this goal of viewpoint diversity. But you actually pointed out that, you know, given the nature of the broadcasting market, sometimes the opposite can be true. And that sort of consolidated ownership might actually encourage more viewpoint diversity in some circumstances. Is that a fair reading? Yeah. The, uh, the idea is, uh, is quite an old one that, so you have two radio stations that are broadcasting a classic rock format in a town. They're independently owned and they're essentially going after the same valuable audience demographic men, 18 to 35. But then you allow a station owner to buy both stations. He's got an he has a an incentive to not continue to have two stations that he owns compete against each other. And mm. because of that, he might change the format of one of the two stations to reach a different audience demographic, maybe women 12 to 24, for example. Right? So you can generate diversity that way. It's called rivalrous imitation. The problem is, is that when it comes to audience demographics, the product that media stations actually produce, and that is a sellable audience for advertisers, Mm 
it's not really about content. It's about the advertisers producing certain audiences. Some audiences are more valuable than others. So stations are willing to compete for a, a smaller chunk of the more valuable pie rather than diversify themselves to hit uh, multiple outlets. So I'm here in Milwaukee right now um, on winter break. And one of the major owners of radio stations in this town is actually operating two sports talk stations out of the same facility, two different ones, because it's a relatively inexpensive format to produce. And there's a knowledge that there'll be a sellable audience attached to that. So what we see is that internal competition should at least theoretically create more diversity, but it actually often doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I thought that was really fascinating. Um, and, you know, as soon as I read it, I was like, oh, wow, that makes perfect sense. And I'm surprised I, I hadn't, I hadn't confronted that before, you know, but one thing, one thing did strike me, right. Which is that this model still does sort of assume, you know, economically rational market participants running the various stations. And uh, I mean, I, I mean, I do wonder, like, it, it seems like the, a lot of people sort of engaging in these questions about merger and consolidation and ownership and competition, right, that they're not always assuming kind of economically rational actors. And that, you know, sometimes people might have, for example, ideological or political motives for wanting to control certain kinds of, of airways. Are, are there, are, you know, are, are there reasons we should be concerned about that as well? And are there ways that kind of the regulatory bodies like the FCC could, could manage potentially those kinds of problems? Yes, um, I am a I'm an avid First Amendment guy, despite my regulatory background. So I don't object to certain companies having a certain viewpoint. So the obvious example here is Sinclair. Sinclair's attempt to get the Tribune merger became largely about Sinclair's viewpoints, which some people strongly object to. I don't think that the Sinclair merger should have been opposed on Sinclair's political viewpoints or bias, what have you but rather on the production model that Sinclair would have applied to stations. Sinclair, like many media consolidators, wanted to buy up a bunch of stations in different places and then nationalize the content production across those stations, thus removing local programming in favor of programming produced once but reused in multiple places. And that is a far more important issue for the FCC to consider than the potential bias of any uh, potential company that might be trying to consolidate. The issue isn't what programming content or bias that programmer might ultimately produce, but how they are going to produce it. When content is produced in one place and used in other places, you're really killing both localism and diversity at the same time. So example, when I worked for Clear Channel before I was an academic, Clear Channel built a uh, centralized news production facility in Cleveland, Ohio, and was producing local news for other markets in Cleveland. 
Wow. And it was really funny being from southeastern Wisconsin. We have lots of Indian names. You can hear my accent. We, ha- we have a certain way of speaking. People in Cleveland couldn't pronounce any of the names of the towns or anything like that. But for Clear Channel, it made sense to do it that way. Economically, it made sense. They only needed one newsroom, and they could have news produced by that newsroom and go out to multiple markets at the same time electronically. So it was it was an economy of scale thing, right? They needed far less news people. They didn't need a news person in Milwaukee. They had one in Cleveland that could cover our market, as well as the markets in Chicago and Minneapolis and so on. So it, it gets to a situation where it's not necessarily about the, the, the bias or the lean of the content itself, but more about how and where the content is actually being produced. Those are the, the things that I, I believe the FCC should should be focusing on moving forward and it's been the 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 part of this equation the fcc has been very reluctant to deal with over the last 20 plus years yeah yeah so you in your paper you provide what i think is a, a really cool kind of new framework for thinking about that but but in order for audiences to understand it i was wondering if you could spend another minute talking about the regulatory changes in 1996 that seem like they've sort of teed up a lot of the sort of problems and like weird like regulatory stasis that you're kind of talking about in the paper and why that happened. Sure. Um, In 1996, Congress directed the FCC to entirely restructure how media ownership was limited. Notably, um, in terms of radio, for example, instead of a national limit on radio stations that could be owned by a single owner, um, instead it was a market-based limit. So at one point, a single media organization could own 7 a.m., 7 f.m., and 7 television stations. That was later expanded to what we would call the rule of 12s, which was 12 in each service. Later on, it was uh, a percentage of the national television audience, as well as as many as 40 stations with limitations on how many could be in the FM band. But in 1996, the rules changed instead of being um, sort of this national limit for radio. What they were is you could own a single owner could own up to eight radio stations in the largest markets, and it scaled down to about six in smaller uh, metropolitan areas. But that meant a single owner could take over a good third of the radio dial in each town, and that's ultimately what happened. And that process happened very quickly. The FCC did not uh, take time to implement that incrementally. They just went with what Congress told them to do. They did it very quickly. And we went from the largest radio company in the United States owning 38 radio stations to a company then Clear Channel, which owned over 1,340 radio stations at one point, but was also producing content for competitors for about 5,000 stations, which is about half of the commercial radio stations in the United States at the time. So you have a, a situation where it's not just about ownership, it's about where the content is being produced and distributed and w- how those companies paid for those what was uh, ever spiraling increase in pricing for stations that they were acquiring is they reduced local staffs and began to operate stations, not just in one town 
in a consolidated fashion. So not just the six radio stations here in town, but also the six stations in Madison, the six stations in Eau Claire, right? They began to manage them on a regional and then eventually a national level um, and standardized content across those stations. They essentially nationalized how that went. And that happened very quickly. Um, I've told this story, other people who may have encountered me in the past. At one point, the consolidation in radio was happening so quick that while I was working for Clear Channel, in the span of six paychecks, I actually worked for five different companies in the same job. And this is, I mean, this be this is what drove my interest in sort of the administrative procedure behind media ownership, is that I was very concerned about what each one of those transitions was doing to things like our newsroom and the local content that we were producing. And I, I became very interested in why we thought this was a good idea. And the answer to that question is, is we did it so fast, we never had a chance to decide whether or not we should have done it in the way that we did. And the FCC has struggled to resolve the situation it created for the last 15 years. Yeah, when it struck me from your your paper that it, I mean, it sounds like the regulatory expectations on the FCC changed as well. Like it had to justify its actions in a different way, and that it kind of doesn't seem like it. At least in your telling, doesn't seem like it's settled on sort of a way to explain its decision making process in a way that's satisfying to the courts that are reviewing it or sort of a logic for how it's going to proceed going forward? Well, the problem is, is that the FCC acted very quickly to implement media ownership rules. And once the wheel was turning, it turned very, very quickly. And the FCC never really had a chance to recover from that. So the first attempt by the FCC to do something after 1996 in an order to review its rules, which it has to do on an ongoing basis, was in 2003, the FCC released a new, entirely new structure for assessing media ownership called the Diversity Index. This thing was a mathematical mess that obviously had not uh, withstood any sort of meaningful peer review. And a challenge was brought to the to this FCC order um, by Prometheus Radio Project, which is a low-power FM organization. And the case ends up in the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, and the FCC loses very badly in court on its diversity index proposal in 2004. And the court basically says in the first Prometheus decision, okay, we understand what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to review these media ownership rules, get rid of ones that aren't useful anymore, modify the ones so that they are, they remain useful. And you have to do that on an ongoing basis. But there's not one scrap of evidence in the administrative docket that shows what the FCC had done between 1996 and 2003 had actually generated the results the FCC said were going to occur. And that lack of that relationship, that the missing component, actual empirical evidence becomes the the point at which media ownership becomes hung, hung up on. The FCC will meet a similar fate in 2007 when a second Prometheus decision comes down on the FCC's decision in 2007 on media ownership. In 2011, the Third Circuit Court of Appeals 
takes the remand that it issued in 2004 and says you still haven't produced any evidence that suggests that what you're doing is working, right? Come back, figure it out. And then the FCC drags its feet for about five years. And finally, not only does the Prometheus group, the, the pro-regulation petitioners, but even the media industry are, are sort of chomping at the bit for the FCC to do something. Those two sides agree to sit at the same table and they agree to drag the FCC into court in April of 2016 to get the FCC to do anything at all. And the FCC essentially says, well, this is really hard. The court sort of chastises them for saying it's hard. And here we are in January of 2019. But in just a few weeks ago, in the last FCC meeting, the FCC launched its latest media ownership review, which doesn't look like it's going anywhere either because of the basic fundamental premise. The FCC cannot produce solid, reliable empirical evidence that media ownership policy is achieving its stated goals. And the courts, the Third Circuit has just about had it with the FCC on that point. Yeah, yeah. So you you propose a a solution, which I find you know personally very appealing in a lot of ways. But you also explain how it might actually work, like how it might benefit the FCC and enable the FCC to do its job. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your actual proposal, sort of what you think it should do, and why you think it's a better way for the FCC to approach this problem. So the paper takes on the idea that there are three objectives to media ownership policy, competition, localism, and diversity. The FCC is really focused on the first one. It assumes that competition will create the other two, but we know that, well, we don't know, but we have certain amounts of evidence that suggest that that relationship is methodologically and conceptually flawed. And my point is, is that when you look at the history of this policy, something I've lived and breathed for more than 20 years now, is that the missing link here is the localism aspect to the equation. The FCC has all but ignored uh, any effort to create localism or to promote it. In fact, its most recent media ownership proposal continues to try and do away with locally based rules, the local radio ownership rule, the local television rule, for example. And my point in the paper is that a locally based system and an FCC shift away from competition in favor of a localism approach actually provides the FCC something it really needs to proceed on media ownership. That is a way to placate the third circuit with a new plan. Localism is an opportunity for the FCC to sort of say to the third circuit, okay, we recognize that this other plan didn't work, but we're still bound by our statutory mandate from the 1996 Telecommunications Act. And what we need is the creation of content and programming diversity. And we can build that by requiring stations to engage in forms of localism that have kind of gotten away from the regulatory structure for a long time now. And that's the argument that I make in the paper is that the FCC has to basically admit that that what it's doing isn't working, but here's a new idea that will allow the FCC to break this impasse with the Third Circuit. The reality is that the FCC has not changed media ownership rules other than the newspaper broadcast cross-ownership rule, which was passed in 1975 since 1996, because it cannot generate solid empirical evidence that the plan works. 
In all of the reviews, the FCC is required to review media ownership policy. At first, it was every two years, later, every four years. So since 1996, in 1998, they basically said, we don't know how the dust is going to settle on this, so we can't make a decision on whether or not the rules work. So they punted then. In 2000, they reviewed all of the existing media ownership rules so that they understood how they played in terms of the consolidation, which was occurring at the time. And then in 2003, they meet their first of four, well, their first of three losses in the Third Circuit on media ownership decisions with the diversity index. And in real terms, the FCC has not made a switch on media ownership policy since 1996. So for all of Ajit Pai and Commissioner Carr and Commissioner O'Reilly's rhetoric about how we need different rules to meet the high-speed, multi-changing environment for media, the FCC is still regulating broadcasters as if it's 1996. The only rule that has been changed since the Telecommunications Act is the national ownership cap on television. In the Telecommunications Act, it was 35%. During the dispute over the diversity index, Congress expanded that limit in a specific delegation to the agency to 39% because the Fox stations, the owned and operated stations that Fox had, were actually hitting a 39% audience cap at that point. It was just a, so that Murdoch didn't have to sell off any stations. It was sort of a gentleman's agreement on 39%. But that means that in 22 years, or 23 years, it's 2019 now, the FCC has not changed a single media ownership rule passed it since 1996. All the okay. changes have okay. come from Congress. So so, so, how would your lo- proposed kind of localism approach look different? Like how would it work in practice and why do you think it would work better? Well, the problem is, is that the FCC needs to show the Third Circuit something to break the impasse. The re- it's a remand, it's a remand, it's a remand. The FCC can't produce empirical evidence using competition as the centerpiece. So localism is the opportunity. I suggest that a very simple quantitative requirement of stations be assessed. And we're not reinventing the wheel here. Broadcast television stations are still required under the law to carry three hours a week of programming that targets children uh, with educational or informational programming targeting kids 18 and under. So it's not a not a massive reinvent of the wheel. It's just a simple requirement that stations that are licensed to local and local places produce programming that's focused on those local places. Now, I would love it as First Amendment guy if that took the form of informational public affairs programming, but I don't think it has to, right? A focus on content that's produced at the local level that targets a local audience creates diversity because there'll be new types of programming available, meets the localism objective, and it provides a new mechanism for competition between the local stations. It meets all three of the objectives. And although it doesn't necessarily solve the problem, it gives the FCC an opportunity to say to the Third Circuit, look, we can try this for a while if you let us. And that's the proposal that I'm trying to make, is that by focusing on an old-style regulation, just a quantitative, not qualitative, quantitative content requirement, minimal three hours per week, of locally produced and aired programming, the FCC can break this impasse with the Third Circuit. Yeah. Okay. So this, Terry, it's, it's been great talking to you. And this has been like an incredible learning experience on 
broadcast regulation for me. And I was wondering if you could leave, uh, if you could leave my listeners with a sense of sort of if the FCC adopts an approach similar to the one that you're suggesting, how do you think it would kind of affect the broadcasting landscape? Like what, what could they expect? I think the broadcasting landscape would see um, some new audience demographics start to appear and attract customers and audiences that they're not seeing with the sort of standardized, nationalized types of playlists and programming that they're producing today. Thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Howard Cosell. One of the remarkable adventures in science was man's fight against yellow fever. The very first steps in conquering the dread disease were taken in 1900 when Walter Reed's Army Medical Commission began tracking down the death-carrying mosquito in Cuba. In spite of skepticism and red tape, Reed's men risked and sacrificed their lives to carry out the necessary experiments. Because of that sacrifice, yellow fever is all but conquered in most parts of today's world. The struggle against death by Green and his men is one of many incidents in American history brought to life by the Armed Forces Bicentennial Caravan. You'll find it both fascinating and enjoyable. <laughs> 